Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 348 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for Bursting the Carnivore Bubble. So this is the topic that we've been asked just so many times, and in some ways we have addressed it, but we wanted to go ahead and devote an entire episode on why we feel being an omnivore is the root of optimal eating. So in today's episode, we're going to discuss concerns of an exclusively carnivorous diet and defend vegetables and plant consumption. Yes, and before y'all start changing to the next week's episode, you need to note as both of us as recovering vegans, we are big fans, as you know, of a snout to tail animal consumption approach to eating. I am a huge proponent of protein consumption and I am very aware and encouraging of the fact that there are more biologically available nutrient dense sources of micronutrients in animal products. When you let the animal do the work for you, you're going to get more concentrated source of nutrition. And in fact, you know, I've claimed in the anti-anxiety diet that meat and shifting out of a vegan diet and consuming animal products again played a huge role in my recovery from autoimmune disease. The use of bone broth was absolutely essential in restoring my gut and the incorporation of, again, these snout to tail traditional foods played a really important role in recovery and balancing out my nervous system. But in today's episode, rather than singing the praises of meats, which I think we pretty much do very regularly, it feels like almost at least one out of three episodes, we're talking about how you have to eat liver <laughs> and how you have to keep, incorporate organs. If we're talking about a food as medicine topic, we're always talking about the nutrient density of ancestral approaches of eating meat. But in today's episode, I want to take a moment and defend plants and seasonings and spices and eating as an omnivore. Yes. And speaking of defending plants, we actually have an episode, this is two plus years ago, called in defense of vegetables. And we put that out around the time of Dr. Gundry's plant paradox coming out and just being all the rage on plant toxins. Um, so I'm excited to get into today's episode, which could get a little bit spicier maybe than that one with two years under our belts. Um, but before we do that, let's just have a quick word from today's sponsor for this episode, Peak State Coffee. Yes. I think that what could not be a more perfect example of a carnivore convenience bend because most carnivores that I know still drink coffee and technically coffee is not an animal-based food. It comes from a plant. So it's really interesting when we look at the elements of where we bend and peak state coffee would be a good consideration. Uh, peak state coffee actually provides 
adaptogenic compounds within their smooth, delicious, lower acidity, chemical-free, mold-free, non-GMO coffee. And as I've shared before, when I tasted Peak State, I was very hesitant because I've had many other products on the market out there that are coffee alternatives or infused coffees with adaptogens, etc. But Peak State is a lovely coffee for coffee drinking snobs, meaning that if you have a palate that can actually discern different types of beans and you enjoy the ritual of coffee, but maybe you get a little bit of a neurological uptick, maybe you get a little bit of that adrenaline or epinephrine surge, or it spikes cortisol in your system, using Peak State Coffee is a great way to maintain the healthy benefits of coffee consumption while mitigating that fight or flight stress response. So they add in 500 milligrams of lion's mane, reishi, chaga in every serving of Peak State Coffee. And then I already mentioned that it's lower acidity. So that's also going to be a way to not drive the gut distress that coffee can deliver for many. Also, we're going to see that it's mold-free and aflatoxins are of concern with coffee. Mold toxicity is definitely on the rise. So when you're drinking peak state, you can rest assured that it is pure. It is also going to give you that adaptogen benefit for immune support and nootropic boost or brain boosting characteristics. And maybe most importantly, it's going to taste delicious. So go on over to Peak State Coffee. That's P-E-A-K-S-T-A-T-E-C-O-F-F-E-E.com slash Allie Miller RD. We'll also have a link in the show notes, but when you use my code Allie Miller RD at checkout or use that unique link, you're going to let them know you learned about them from the Naturally Nourished podcast. And for that, you get 20% off and free shipping on two bags or more. I will note that they do have cans actually that I sell at my market and they're like a nitro cold brew. Those are lovely, but they also have whole beans. So they infuse these medicinal mushroom compounds into the whole bean. Again, it's not a processed powdered product. It's something that you can still maintain and grind by the day by your percolator or slow pour over and enjoy a beautiful ritual of quality coffee, knowing that it is pure and it's going to boost your brain. Yes. And even if you are a staunch carnivore, you know, maybe incorporating something like peak steak coffee into the diet could have other benefits. So we could see longevity or actually living longer. You can see, you know, your body processing glucose or sugar better. Um, you can see, you know, less likelihood of developing heart failure, less likelihood of developing Parkinson's disease, um, support for your liver, stronger DNA, reduced pain and depression, and so much more as benefits of both coffee and adaptogens combined. Absolutely. So again, both plants, and we would argue that the health benefits would outreward the dogma of a carnivore diet. Totally. Plus it's going to taste delicious yeah. as well. So <laughs> anyway, um, before we get into why carnivore might not be ideal, let's go ahead and give it some airtime of some of the benefits and maybe some of the ways that you and I would use this approach in clinic for short term. For sure. So the carnivore diet is going to, for most people, be a way to boost their protein intake. And we do know that Getting ample protein in the diet is essential for lean body mass. There are many health benefits that we see to consuming optimal protein, and definitely we see a lot of health deterioration issues if someone's undernourished in protein. So it's going to be a protein-rich diet, super important. We also know that a carnivore diet will reduce 
many common food allergies and sensitivities. So we're removing gluten, we're removing soybeans, we're going to be removing a lot of the pro-inflammatory oxidized oils. This would be a huge benefit for sure. A strong carnivore diet would also remove or reduce alcohol consumption, which again could aggravate endocrine or metabolic health issues and drive toxicity. It would, of course, reduce the consumption of added sugar and processed or refined carbohydrates, which we know not only drives diabetes and obesity, but could have a myriad of health influential negative outcomes. We know that a carnivore diet would likely, if done so with clean sourced carnivore eating and not industrialized COFA eating of confined animal farms, should reduce the amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids from omega-6 compounds. We know that a carnivore diet also would be a big way to drive remission of diabetes and support insulin resistance, driving insulin sensitivity by not stimulating the insulin response. Yes. Um, and it's important to note that none of the things you just said are, are necessarily unique traits of a carnivore diet per se, um, but any potential benefit you know, might be gained from targeted areas could be done so um, by not adhering to completely strict carnivore principles. We could actually get them from doing keto with a little bit more liberation. Yeah. Carnivore is just like a really easy way to cut the fluff and do a really simple bare bones keto approach. Absolutely. So all of those benefits would be attributable also to a Mediterranean keto diet as far as the refined carbs, meeting your protein needs, et cetera. Um, and like you said, you might not have to be as restricted. So yes, restricting carbs to produce ketones and gain the benefits, I think net good, but you might not need to completely eliminate carbs altogether to reap those benefits. Yes. And when you completely eliminate the carbs, like you said, Becky, you could call it an easy keto or a dumbed down version of keto, but that might be just a short-term way to start to get results. It may not be sustainable because of the lack of diversity. And also, as we'll argue in today's episode, it may not be as optimal for whole body health to continue to restrict those carbs. And you had asked, you know, when do we use this in clinical practice? We would likely use more of a carnivore approach for an autoimmune individual dealing with a significant flare where we're really trying to reduce the amount of ingredients in their diet Mm -hmm. and focus on reducing that muscle wasting and restoring their gut. So they would do essentially like a bone broth rich diet that also is accompanied by lower inflammatory protein rich animal foods and incorporating organs in that but this would be a mechanism of a healing process with an autoimmune flare or in a severe state of gut dysbiosis for a short term well as we'll talk about today we would still need to actively treat the dysbiosis to resolve right okay and just thinking about you know proponents of the carnivore diet paul saladino for example was on our podcast um that was episode 195 on carnivore code. And I know even he has kind of started to loosen up a little bit since then. Yeah. So if someone is, you know, putting out a book and branding this diet to be optimal, but breaking it themselves, that would be a huge red flag to me about the sustainability and the level of enjoyment or the need of this to be something that's actually a diet that can actually be achieved or maintained. Currently, you know, he's sharing that he's doing much more plants, a lot of fruits in particular, He showed just last week that he was eating cheese from Costco, which I don't even eat cheese from Costco as someone that consumes dairy. I only eat 
raw Jersey milk, A2, from a local farm. And I tried to use raw aged cheeses. I know that's one of them that he showed for sure had um, one of the antifungal components in it. Um, so it's quite a shift from the jungles of Africa of eating with a tribe to shopping and eating dairy at Costco. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember that when we did our interview together, he was only eating beef at that time, no pork, no dairy, you know, and so that's kind of a, a big shift it seems as well. Definitely no chicken. And it was like beef that was like boiled in water with salt, no seasoning. And I knew when he was sharing that with his 24 hour recall, I, I remember raising my eyebrow and being like, that's just not going to last. Right. So I think that's the first point here is that it's not sustainable or really enjoyable. Sounds like at all, if you're just eating, you know, beef that's boiled in water with some salt, um, for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think another element of busting the carnivore bubble would be that it's not accurately ancestral. Honestly, proponents of the carnivore diet will claim that ancestral humans ate mostly meat and fish and that, you know, diets deviating from this carnivorous diet are the cause of high rates of chronic illness. However, I would argue that the high rates of chronic illness are those that we just addressed, the refined uh, processed sweeteners, the polyunsaturated inflammatory oils, processed toxins in our food system, etc. So again, yes, carnivore would remove these things, but you can also achieve those outcomes eating a more diverse diet with incorporating some whole real plants in addition to those quality source proteins. And we know that research suggests that ancient human hunter gatherers, that's why they aren't just called hunters, there's the mm-hmm. gatherer part, right? Um, that only, you know, 30% of their annual calories likely came from animal sources. There are exceptions like the Inuit and other groups in the Arctic where those individuals may have received 99% of their calories from seals, narwhals, and fish. And that is due to the limitations of their extremely cold environment. It was not habitable to produce or, or actually find wild grown plants during many times of the year, but in places where it was available, humans chose to eat plants. And I think that's something sure. to nail out. Like I think if an Inuit was proposed an apple or something that was edible, berries, uh, greens, etc., that they likely would consume that just as we saw with the hunter gatherers in the remaining population. Sure. Um, so yeah, ancient humans also relied on plant foods, vegetables, grains, nuts, berries, like you mentioned, to meet their caloric needs. Absolutely. And so, you know, we could argue that as the second point, the carnivore diet on meat exclusively does not necessarily replicate the diversity of foods that our ancient human ancestors ate. Okay. Um, so I want to address the, um, plant toxins. Um, and I know we had a listener question recently about this actually, so I'll just ask their question. Um, what are your thoughts on anti-nutrients and the cost to benefit ratio? Do you feel we need plants in a real food detox? So yes, this individual was setting up to do my detox and they were wondering if they could do the detox as a carnivore approach. And we'll talk in a moment as another argument on liver health. So I'll kind of leave the detox element aside, but I want to definitely remind you that that episode 127 in defense of plants in that episode, we break down solanine, lectins, and we go into all of the anti-nutrients and their compounds and the biochemical response. So listen to that to get a deep dive on what anti-nutrients do in the body and the actual risk factor association. The way I would address this kind of broad stroke, if you will, is with the answer of hormesis. So mitohormesis is this concept that a stressor that induces mitochondrial production of antioxidants and enhances performance 
is going to be a beneficial add-in to the body. So the ketogenic diet in itself actually drives some mitochondrial hormesis or some hormetic stress in the production of ketones and the body fuels better on ketones. We see mitochondrial recovery, less mitochondrial toxicity when an individual does keto. Now, if we're talking about phytocompounds or plant-based compounds, these all have flavonoids. And generally speaking, these compounds are going to play a role. Maybe they have oxalates, maybe they have phytates, lectins, or other identified anti-nutrients. And these are created because the plant can't fight or flee. The plant is rooted to the ground. And so the plant makes compounds that a grazing animal or a predator, when consuming, would stop the overconsumption so that crop itself does not completely diminish. However, when we're looking at consumption of these said anti-nutrients, whether it's sulforaphane, whether it is curcumin and turmeric, we see in research studies that consumption of these compounds increases our endogenous production of glutathione or our body's antioxidant production increases when we challenge it with what some people would demonize as an anti-nutrient. So I would answer that it is dependent on your focus and your goals. If you're dealing with severe gut integrity or gut damage issues, or again, autoimmune flare, maybe you want to keep the plant matter lower in your diet during your healing and recovery process. But, you know, after a six-week rehab using maybe a more carnivore, bone broth-based diet, at this point, a lot of that extreme inflammation or intestinal tissue damage should be back on track. We would also be layering in the GI lining support to repair actual tissue damage. We'd be supporting a robust microbiome, which are good gut bacteria play a role in breaking down the dense walls of cell plants and break down some of those anti-nutrient compounds. And I think, again, just digging back into the simplicity of the idea that even if we want to label something as toxic, if it stimulates a beneficial outcome in the individual that consumed it and they have a higher antioxidant status, a better ability to combat chronic illness and disease, including infection, that you know the end outcome is going to be enhanced function and I'm all for it. Okay. I think I think you answered that well. Okay. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> That's what I can simplify. I mean, there are more yeah. than 500 studies that have been conducted on the mechanisms and biological activity of sulforaphane alone. And then, you know, many more even on its precursor glucoraphin. And, you know, glucoraphin is referred to as that sulforaphane glucosinolator, that SGS compound. And this plays a super potent role in phase two detoxifying enzymes. It's a long acting antioxidant in the body. So following consumption, we tend to see stores still having effects in the body days, weeks after consumption. And this is why we really lean into, you know, consuming sprouts would be maybe an easier to digest option. Um, Definitely the florette, then less than the stem. But I mean, sulforaphane has so many broad spectrum benefits. We see antimicrobial activity. We see its ability to fight both gram positive and negative bacteria. We've seen beneficial outcomes with H. pylori treatment. And again, it's anti-inflammatory effects and regulation in cytokine production, which could extend into cancers, cardiovascular disease, upper airway inflammation, radiation um, to offset the harmful effects of it, dermatitis and skin conditions, vascular health, 
and it goes on. So I think that the body of clinical research, which shows a lot of them being double blind clinical trials where you're actually testing against a placebo, the consumption of said plant, that that's an argument for a win. And so for all of those reasons, I think our Brocco detox could be a fabulous tool, maybe for someone who's dealing with SIBO, or maybe they get, you know, a dynamic gut response from yes. consuming broccoli. Like they're getting a lot of, you know, gas or disrupted bowels. You could get those effects in a concentrated and less irritating way in a supplement. Yes. And then our Brocco Detox uses that sprout and seed in there, which again would be more digestible over the floret or the stem. And then even more so, we're going to get the benefit because we add the myoracinase, which is the activating enzyme for the sulforaphane. And um, that's going to aid in ensuring that you're getting that cellular activity. Yes. Okay. And I think that's important to call out because different parts of a plant can be more digestible. Um, and we can do things to further support the way in, in terms of like combining with other whole food ingredients to activate enzymes or to support digestive function. And then we can also add on, you know, digestive enzyme support as kind of a first line of defense. Um, and then we really just need to assess again why we aren't tolerating that broccoli in the first place. Is the gut lining off? Is the microbiome off? Is there an actual immune response? And we do that via, you know, food sensitivity testing. Absolutely. So we're not trying to silence the canary in the coal mine. We're trying to listen to the body and see that as evidence of something being off, generally speaking. So taking our digest aid is a great way, especially for listeners that were doing lower plant consumption and are looking to transition from carnivore back into omnivore. Our digest aid is a fabulous tool because it has compounds that help to break down the dense fibers. It breaks down carbs, proteins, and fats. So also would be appropriate for those even transitioning into keto or more of a carnivorous type approach because it's going to help with that protein breakdown with the BT and HCL. And then also there is going to be support with ox bile in there. Um, so that's a really good player to support an optimized digestive environment. And then GI lining, as I alluded to, yes, would be a really important one if we're dealing with food sensitivity and an inflammatory response following food consumption. Because yes, you want to eliminate that inflammatory inflammatory food, but you need to repair the gut associated lymphatic tissue and that gut integrity so that your surveillance system doesn't then turn on you and start hating beef because that would make it really difficult to heal and maintain a carnivore diet. Yep. And just not very fun. Right. Uh, And then, you know, if we're thinking it's more of a microbiome concern, like, oh, it's all cruciferous vegetables that seem to be driving an issue with me. That's when we would consider going into something like our beat the bloat program to kind of plow the field. And that, like you said, could be done in a more carnivore-ish approach. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I would argue that, you know, even within the supplementation, we see beneficial outcomes with the berberine and the oregano and those plant compounds, right? Yes. You need plant-based compounds or you're choosing a pharmaceutical drug. So you get to choose. And most drugs, generally speaking, also are derived from plants. So we go back into the history of plant medicine and medications and we look at things like, for instance, you know, statin drugs being coming from red yeast rice. Um, We look at influence from various drugs out there. We know that uh, baeta is coming from lizard, Um, you know, so there's various compounds out there that come from nature and plants have always historically been a place that 
humans have gone to to use as a healing modality. Okay. Um, so health supporting effects from plants, um, important to treat while you're not tolerating them, you know, rather than ignoring them or writing off that food group for the rest of your life. Let's dig into a few more reasons why carnivore isn't ideal. Okay. So I'm breaking down today's episode into five reasons. The first is that it's unsustainable and potentially unenjoyable for a long period of time. Um, the second would be that I don't believe that it's ancestrally accurate And the third one that I started to tip into that I'm going to dig a little deeper into is the fact that it has a lower antioxidant status. Um, So when we're looking at, again, there's the argument of endogenous production of antioxidants that are actually upregulated through that hormetic or mitohormesis effect from exposure to plants. And I'd also welcome you to check out episode 117, all about antioxidants, where we break down antioxidants and phytocompounds. And the word phytocompound means from plant. So plant-based compounds. And we often will talk about like eating the rainbow because we know from carotenoids to quercetin to lutein to lycopene to resveratrol to various whole plant foods, all of these are unique antioxidants that have their own suite of disease-fighting properties and come from different plant-based compounds or pigments. So the exclusion of plant foods may itself actually have a negative effect on the health of people. We know that diets that are plant-based and have high amounts of antioxidants can be associated with lower chronic conditions of heart disease, cancers, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, And that phytonutrients from plants have benefits beyond antioxidants. They have anti-inflammatory effect. They can reduce allergic response in the body. They can reduce spasms and support digestive environment. They can combat cancer activity, have anti-aging, and even neuroprotective effects. Okay, so a lot of good reasons to consume plants. Now, we can't claim necessarily nutrient density because we know the majority of nutrients, especially, you know, things like B12, carnitine, we've talked about this in past episodes, are more bioavailable in meat. But also, there are certain antioxidants like vitamin C, K1, um, there's magnesium as a, a mineral really only found in plant foods. Yes. So, you know, there's vitamins and antioxidants for sure that are going to be seen in plants. And that's why it's the beauty of being an omnivore. Um, we did highlight in our episode 42, Becky's first episode, uh, I think it's called, maybe it's not called recovering vegan, but maybe transitioning from a vegan diet the superiority of nutrient density of minerals, B vitamins in animal-based products. But again, we can't ignore phytocompounds and kind of these third level or third tier antioxidants and their role on health effects. And then there's also hormonal mediating effects. So we know, for instance, flaxseed plays a role in metabolizing estrogens. We know the indole 3 carbonyls play a role in detoxing estrogen dominance. And miso has a role in uh, preventing breast cancer. So there are mechanisms on a hormonal level that are healing and modulating with incorporating plants as well. Totally. All right. Um, let's talk about liver health and detox. Yes. Yes. So when we look at eating exclusively a carnivore diet, we do know that there can be consequences for liver and kidneys, especially in an individual that has a damaged, diseased, or stressed liver and kidneys. And I will say that this is often the individual that turns to carnivore, someone that has been dealing with obesity for decades, and they've tried everything. They've done maybe even the Ozempic. They've done the Weight Watchers. They've done all the things, and then they, this is their like third-ditch try. 
And so many of these individuals are on multiple hypertensive drugs. Some of them might have a stage of kidney disease or may already have fatty liver as a diagnosis. And in these individuals, their liver and kidneys may have more of a difficult time processing the protein, especially if they're eating a dirty carnivore approach. Um, so that would mean like industrial meats. So sure. they're getting their meat Going at through Walmart. through the drive-through. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. et cetera. Um, and again, I would argue that that's not carnivore because there's a lot of, I would call, chemical additives that are definitely not meat-based. Sure. Um, they're products of the industry in there. And yet those get the write-off because they're in the veil of a meat patty instead of, again, incorporating black pepper, which would upregulate your hydrochloric acid and absorb, aid in your absorption and breakdown and metabolism of the protein in the first place. Totally. Um, so might not be the best first line of defense if you have, you know, a damaged metabolism, if you have fatty liver that's gone undiagnosed, et cetera. Yes. And there was a Dutch study that I will say myself, I think was pretty poor. It was an observational study and it did say that, um, a lack of animal protein might be a lead to those. I'm sorry, those that ate a lot of animal protein may be the lead to have excessive fat in their livers. It was observational though, so I'm not taking a lot of money into that bank, but I will state personally that clinically, I've had more than five cases of strict carnivores, especially those that were not limiting their fat intake, um, to see also paired with maybe excessive fasting to see significant rises in estrogen as well as liver enzyme elevation. And so this is concerning because again, Again, these individuals likely have damaged their liver in the first place from fructose consumption or excessive carbs. So I don't think it's the carnivore diet that did the initial insult, mm -hmm. but I'm saying for the population of individuals that are coming from an unhealthy state, their bodies may not be able to be primed. Is that, am I expressing that yeah, clearly? I think that makes so sense. their bodies, liver and kidneys may not do as well with going right away into a higher protein diet. Again, especially if it's a more processed protein choice. And what I see often is that the fat cells in the body become overloaded and begin to secrete inflammatory cytokines. And the inflammatory cytokines increase inflammation levels. They cause reactive oxygen species to accumulate, driving oxidative stress. And there's not enough binding going on because of the lack of the plant matter. So we see lipotoxicity. So this can be accumulation of toxins in the fat cells and in the non-fat cells, as well as higher circulating fat that isn't bound and removed from our bowels. Um, and so this can drive higher circulating reabsorption of toxins in that gut blood barrier, um, especially in the colon. And we can also see that in the, the guise of estrogen. So I've seen individuals have liver enzymes go up in the 300s. Maybe they dropped 30 pounds on the scale doing carnivore, but their liver isn't able to process the toxins that were liberated from that fat loss. And now they're in a less healthy state, even though the scale reflects success. And I can think of some things that would help them to process those toxins, and they're mostly found in plants. Yes, <laughs> most definitely, most definitely. And then, you know, there are various genetics that would make you a higher risk candidate for non-alcoholic fatty liver. Um, and I'll link a study that I found that tied in the two different gene variants. Um, and these individuals would want to really be especially supporting their liver with compounds that drive bile and that support liver health. So we see often when people are transitioning to carnivore, that's a big known issue is that there's often diarrhea or a loose stool. And so again, as I'm arguing is that the gut is reabsorbing the fat soluble toxins because we're not binding that elimination. 
Also, bile isn't easy for the body to make. A lot of these candidates might also be missing their gallbladder, which is the storage tank for bile. And, um, you know, bile is usually recycled rather than made from scratch. So studies show that like 95 to 90% of our bile in our body is reabsorbed and reused. But the bile acids are required on higher amounts to break down hydrophobic lipids. So as lipids or fats are liberated from fat loss or liberated from higher dietary consumption of fat, if the bile isn't reabsorbed correctly, we're going to have an unusual influx and this is going to drive digestive process issues. We know that bile can be somewhat toxic to colon cells and so that extra amount can cause this loose fatty stool and we're not getting the bind of the detox that would be optimal sure um and you know if we're worried about bile malabsorption when it comes to digesting a high fat diet you know a a carnivore ish diet could Mm -hmm. be appropriate um and this would allow more for you know some fruits and root vegetables perhaps or maybe some squash in there i know that's kind of sometimes a gateway for people like acorn squash or something like that yes and then it's interesting i was looking at a car a big carnivore website out there and it was like you know if you're having loose stool again going back to pharma then pharma instead of food is never a good choice so it's like oh go on questerin or go on well coal which well coal is a bile acid sequestrant which would inhibit your absorption of fat soluble right, nutrients right. so now you're not getting a d e k that doesn't make any sense so again it's this idea that this dogma can be deafening to the body instead of really working with the body and surrendering out of the constructs of this narrow diet totally and and we encourage you know eating higher fiber foods and starting to incorporate some of those low carbohydrate vegetables to support if you are dealing with that kind of issue yes we know that actually supporting with fiber can reduce the absorption of harmful lipopolysaccharides Um, it can also improve the health of our cells throughout our body and we can do this in a ketogenic approach so we can still get the benefits that we mentioned in the beginning of today's episode by eating leafy greens in a salad by adding in asparagus um, by adding in like you said cruciferous etc okay and then i know we have a whole podcast on liver health but it's a while back like a long time ago probably in the hundreds of of episodes Um, i'll link that in the show notes but there are also some things you can do to further support fatty liver. Yes, so one that would be carnivore supported would be oily fish. So fatty fish can have a really beneficial way on regulating the liver and supporting blood lipid regulation. We know for sure triglycerides go down with omega-3 fatty acids. So wild caught salmon, heron, etc. Um, regular um, bringing in filtered coffee. So not decaf coffee, but caffeinated coffee was actually associated with reduced fibrosis severity in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So there's that peak state coffee coming in to save you. And again, another plant compound. We know that nuts actually have been shown in research studies to improve liver function tests and walnuts in particular have been found to be one of the healthiest nuts for your liver. Avocado consumption has been shown to support 
liver enzyme pathways. That might be because it has some glutathione in there and a substantial amount of monounsaturated fat paired with fiber and antioxidants. And then olive oil, you know, we talk a lot about like the lemon olive oil shooter. So both lemon and olive oil would be very supportive for the liver, moving our lymphatic system. We know that the oleic acid and antioxidants unique to a quality cold pressed olive oil have been shown to improve liver function tests and help with weight loss. Okay. Um, And then further, we can support the liver with supplementation as well. So you mentioned the digestate, that could be a fabulous tool um, or our methyl complete with um, trimethylglycine. Yeah. So, you know, bringing these compounds in are a great way to support that bile flow and then getting that betaine from beets. Uh, This could be, you know, small amounts that you shave into your salad, which could still maintain that metabolic flexibility of keto. And then I would bring in detox packs for liver support as well. And the big element there, not only the phase one and phase two, which yes, you need sulfur containing amino acids from protein rich foods for detox, but you also need things like milk thistle and you also need things like artichoke root. Milk thistle has the psilocybin, which can actually reduce fat buildup in the liver and also has been shown to reverse liver damage and support hepatocytes or liver cell function. Um, and then probiotics could also be a great recommendation. Um, so one meta-analysis on the effects of probiotics on non-alcoholic fatty liver. Um, the researchers found that probiotic therapy can help to improve liver function and reduce inflammation. Um, and the particular strain that they were looking at looks like it was uh, a bifidobacteria. Yes. And so looking at the bifidobacteria and the lactobacillus, are the most helpful in reversing the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that brings me to the last point of bursting the carnivore bubble, which is the fifth reason, lack of microbiome diversity. So, you know, we see time and time again that plant compounds, yes, impact the gut health. And we know that various plant compounds themselves actually modulate the microbiome. So they have the ability to kill off bacterial imbalance while fueling and supporting good gut flora. So one would be in our leafy greens, the compound sulfoquinivose. And sulfoquinivose is a beautiful natural fiber, if you will, or a non-digestible carbohydrate that can actually reduce candida and can promote healthy lacto and bifido growth. So it's getting both that prebiotic function as well as that antifungal influence. We know apples, for instance, have quercetin and choline and are another source of that betaine, which drives that bile function. But cooked apples actually have an added benefit. They have pectin, which is a gut healing fiber. And this is released in that slow cooking process. And there's evidence that using cooked apples can actually aid in repair and maintenance in the intestinal mucosa lining. So we've seen that they can help to modulate gut bacteria and improve gut dysbiosis, get rid of toxins in the gut as that pectin binds, and to reduce gut inflammation in general. And then I would just argue that fiber in general, whether we're talking about, again, asparagus, Jerusalem artichokes, etc., these are prebiotics to fuel the microbiome, to give food source to the gut flora, 
to metabolize, ferment, and then create short-chain fatty acids, which have their own myriad of benefits of health-supporting effects. Yes. And then we mentioned that it requires botanicals to actually kill off and reset imbalance in the microbiome. So we see caprylic acid, which is going to be derived from coconut and coconut oil. We see berberine, which can come from a couple of different plants and kind of has that bitter astringent um, property. We also see, you know, things like oil of oregano, thyme, totally. sage found in our herbal immune formula, just to name a few, black walnut. These are all keep plants. Going, yes, keep going. Keep going. So many. So I think that today's episode, I think we kind of leave it there, Becky. I think we've kind of bursted the bubble enough. And again, not to be (laughs) sassy, but I think that my kind of mantra or phrase of today's episode is that I I like to say doctrine creates disconnect, but I'm going to say in today's episode that dogma creates deafening. And when you're stuck in dogma with your diet, you deafen the feedback of your body for what it needs. And you're not addressing, you're instead band-aiding and kind of running away from the problem that your body's trying to express to you. So my argument would be that, yes, a carnivore diet could be a reasonable approach for a short-term pulse during your healing journey, but that the optimal way of eating for humans is in an omnivore approach of eating both phytonutrient, antioxidant-rich plants, and animal-based ancestral snout-to-tail, getting ample protein and consuming animal products throughout your day, of course, um, and finding a good balance based on what works best for you. So some will lean a little bit heavier into the veg, some will lean heavier into the protein. That might change with season. That might change with lifestyle cycle of stress or season of the environment of spring, summer, fall, winter. Be open to the changes and the feedback of your body and let your body's feedback be the driver of understanding what works best for you. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.